This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. President Biden, as a self-described most pro-labor president within the most pro-labor administration, took credit for helping to avert a rail strike that could have brought a third of all transported goods in the U.S. to a standstill. Fomenting this potential supply chain crisis was railroad union leadership's confidence in the administration's support, as well as 40-year high inflation rates that provided the courage to demand a 32% wage increase, along with many increases in quality of life enhancements. With the pandemic-weary American economy in the balance, labor leaders stepped up to the edge of the threatened strike and then agreed in the morning hours of September 15th, at least temporarily, to the terms offered by federal mediators. Strike averted, the trains will continue to run if leaders from the 12 constituent unions sign the agreement. How did this potential logistical crisis emerge? Who were the participants and what were their demands? And how will the largest economy in the world cope with the systemic fragility exposed by the possibility of a countrywide rail strike? My guest today is Dominic Pino, the Thomas L. Rhodes Journalism Fellow at National Review Institute. Mr. Pino has researched and written extensively about the National Transportation Network and the complex processes that govern that industry's power and prerogatives to organize and order a strike. Mr. Pino will share with us how our current regulatory regime has evolved and explain how and why the country has come to the brink of a strike that could disrupt the U.S. economy in a way that rivals the recent COVID-19 pandemic. When I return, I'll be joined by National Review Journalism Fellow Dominic Pino. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by National Review Journalism Fellow Dominic Pino. Welcome to Hubwonk, Dominic. Thanks so much, Joe. Thanks for having me. All right, we're going to get into a very complex issue, uh, which is uh, the what seems to have been recently averted uh, rail strike, but the complexity of the rail system in the United States. We're a big country uh, and lots of trains, uh, and but. It's a complex issue, so I'm glad you were able to join me today. You've written quite extensively on this. I enjoy your writing uh, primarily in National Review, where I find your work. Um, what? Let's set the table first by uh, explaining to our listeners, what's your beat uh, as a journalism fellow, and where did you see this uh, impending uh, potential crisis, massive crisis, coming down the tracks, if you for- forgive the pun? Sure. Um, I mostly cover economic issues, uh, mostly focused on uh, domestic issues uh, for National Review. And uh, transportation has been just a huge part of the economic conversation for the last couple of years. So it's something that I've been been focusing on both, uh, you know, with ocean shipping and with with railroad and and, and trucking as well. And um, one of the things that uh, sort of led me to see this coming was in a lot of other countries around the world, we've seen transportation strikes, uh, you know, uh, workers uh, pursuing labor action in the transportation sector. A lot of the reason for that is inflation, because um, for a long time, for about 30 years, you know, all around the developed world, we've had very low and stable inflation. And so employers have gotten used to giving 2%, 3% raises. And when inflation is 1% or 2%, that's not bad. But 
uh, when inflation is 8% or 9%, or in some places in Europe, it's double digits now, um, that those kind of raises aren't going to cut it. So for the first time in 30 years, businesses are having to grapple with much larger raises, which uh, which uh, workers are workers are demanding. So uh, if it's happening in a small corner store, uh, wages being negotiated, it's, it's less noticeable when it's a uh... A massive industry like transportation, it's going to uh, be on everyone's radar. So let's let's again let's uh, uh, frame the situation. We've got a, a three thousand mile uh, continental country um, uh, with lots of tracks. Uh, what percentage of goods that you and I enjoy uh, are are transported by rail? Yeah, roughly a third of, of freight is transported by rail in the United States. Um, it's the second largest proportion after trucking. I see. Um, again, you anticipate my next question, which is, I guess there's three ways you can get goods shipped uh, by a motor vehicle, by train, or uh, I guess airplane, let me add a fourth, uh, and of course by ship. Are you including in that third of the, what we would call intermodal uh, items? Let's say I'm getting a, a um, you know, a, a product from China, it's got to come by ship, and then it gets loaded onto a rail, and then perhaps by a truck. Uh, is, are you including everything in that? Yeah, that's how that that is a, a major component of of rail shipment. Um, a lot of railroads, you know, connect to port complexes and handle imports. Uh, that's that's a major that's a major component of of our of our rail freight. So, uh, which industries you outlined in one of your pieces? Uh, which industries are affected? Uh, that one third, um, uh, you know, it's a substantial portion of of items. But what what are what are most uh, in most of those boxcars as we see the trains going along? Yeah, it especially affects um, basic materials. So things like uh, things like coal, uh, things like grain, soybeans, agricultural products, um, those kind of things. Uh, it also affects normal retail retail products that people buy. Um, whenever you see uh, you know shipping containers on the back of or uh, on, on on trains, you know those are mostly going to be consumer products. But a lot of those uh, bigger, um, uh, you know, open top cars that you'll see are filled with agricultural products or energy related products. Of course, you have tankers, uh, tanker cars that carry oil, petroleum products and that sort of thing. And so um, and, and, and those supply chains, more so than consumer goods, are heavily dependent on rail because of the economies of scale that come from rail and the fact that um, uh, a lot of that stuff is less uh, delicate, so it doesn't. They don't have to worry about it getting damaged in transit as much. So um, we would all notice uh, again. We just lived through a pandemic where we had uh, huge uh, supply chain interruptions. Uh, many people were annoyed that they'd order something on Amazon and it would take forever to arrive. So certainly, a strike would have affected those items that that just don't come because they're not being transported by rail. But the other items you mentioned, like uh, coal or fuel or um, chemicals, those are inputs, right, to other items, uh, large produced items, and perhaps are less flexible. Uh, what would have happened if, let's say, um, the coal or the oil or those chemical inputs that uh, are used to make other things? What would have happened to those industries that that would normally rely rather, you know? heavily on, on uh, consistent rail delivery. Yeah, a lot of them would have tried to ship, uh, shift into trucking because that's the most ready alternative for land-based transportation. Um, and then so they, they would have tried to do that. Now that would have sent 
trucking price is much higher because it would have really increased the demand for that. And there's not, you know, the supply of trucking services is not going to increase that quickly. And so there would have been a lot of capacity problems there because one train holds hundreds of trucks worth of, of goods. And so uh, they would have tried to shift to that. It would have made things a lot more expensive. Some stuff just wouldn't have gotten shipped. Um, you would have had situations of you know stuff just getting stranded across the country. And so uh, railroads were preparing for that actually in the past week. They were uh, looking uh, to prioritize certain shipments and stop processing certain hazardous shipments so that um, these so that it wouldn't be a huge shock to the system. But uh, it certainly would have been a major problem. And like you said, these are inputs to goods that consumers do. Uh, purchase as as final finished goods, and we know from just basic economics, if you uh, reduce the supply of uh, of something or uh, make it harder to get, and don't reduce the demand, uh, that uh, would cause a, a spike in prices for everything that those products ultimately go into making. Um, we didn't touch on uh, one uh, particular item that uh, moves by train, which is people. Uh, transportation is is this something that would have affected? Uh, I'm calling, you know, we're talking from Boston here. Um, would any of our trains have been affected? Uh, you know, let's say if I'm trying to get from Boston to uh, New York, something like that. Yeah, so these negotiations did not cover passenger rail operators or passenger rail employees. And so uh, so they're not directly impacted. This was just for freight rail. However, um, a lot of uh, passenger lines in the United States run on lines that are owned by by freight companies. And so that includes basically every Amtrak line outside of the Northeast Corridor, almost. Um, uh, those are all run on on, on state, uh, or excuse me, on um, freight, uh, freight rail lines. And so even though the train conductors and the engineers on passenger trains are not part of this, uh, you know, the maintenance of way workers, um, and uh, and those kind of uh, support employee support employees that actually maintain the tracks, they would have been covered and they would have been on strike. And so there would have been some disruptions there. It would affect some commuter rail. So in the Chicago area, some of the commuter rail lines run on uh, freight lines. I don't believe any of the Boston commuter rail run on on freight lines. I believe those are all owned by uh, the state of Massachusetts. But um but yeah, the, the Northeast Corridor lines would not have been affected, but a lot of other passenger lines could have been affected uh, around around the U.S. So uh, I think it's fair to say virtually every uh, American would have been uh, touched by this strike, uh, whether it's transportation or uh, goods, uh, in, you know, inflated prices, uh, not getting the products they order. Uh, it would have been a, a massive disruption. Uh, you know, again, I, I don't know if you want to assert this, but on the order of the disruptions that were created by the COVID uh, uh, pandemic, we 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 just lived through. We we all learned the term um, uh, um, supply chain disruption. So let, let's take again another step back and look at the rail industry itself. Uh, I see trains go by, and they have lots of different labels on them. Um, I assume that there's not just one big uh, railway company. There are lots of uh, individual private companies. Uh, share with our listeners what the um, rail industry uh, is made of. How many, let's say, large carriers and, and individual operators are there? Uh, <laughs> there are seven class one freight railroads in the United States. Uh, most of them are concentrated in particular regions. 
And uh, the network is sort of connected east and west in, in Chicago. And so uh, it's not really possible to go from one end of the country to the other on the same railroad. A lot of a lot of things, if it's going cross country, they will they will switch in Chicago or Kansas City or uh, places like that. Um, two of the class one railroads are Canadian, actually. So Canadian National and Canadian Pacific, which also have significant um, network within the United States. And uh, and so these are seven companies. Um, a lot of people will make a point of saying that there used to be a lot more class one railroads, and that's correct. There used to be around 40. Um, and since then, there's been a lot of consolidation and we're down to, to seven. Um, and they'll point to that and say that the industry isn't competitive enough. That's not quite right. First of all, uh, as I said before, uh, trains compete with trucking. So even if they're not competing with other railroads, they're always competing with trucking for for tra- for traffic, and um, uh, sort of uh, proposals to uh, hinder rail traffic uh, through regulation um, in order to remedy this perceived uncompetitiveness is only going to hurt them uh, relative to trucking, and so you're going to shift a lot more to trucking. Uh, and trucking is, of course, a very important part of our supply chain infrastructure. Um, but if it's possible to get things on on rail, that is usually better. It's better for the environment. Um, it's it's more it's more uh, cost effective uh, in a lot of situations. And um, uh, we're having uh, we're having some something of a hard time with trucking as well right now in terms of uh, both regulatory burdens and just um, just uh, ordinary labor market concerns there, so, uh, so, so that's, yeah, that, that that that's roughly how how that uh, how rail fits into our 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 supply chain as a country. So you have seven major uh, players in 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 the freight business. Of course, they're in the context of all of all transportation, as you say, they're competing uh, with trucks, but they're competing with each other. So uh, presumably, uh, I'll, I'll tell you where I'm get, getting with this. We're going to be talking about a labor strike, but isn't it the case that um, individual firms are um, competing with, with each other on price and a big input on uh, what, what uh, um, a rail firm uh, can produce as far as profits is, is uh, good, effective labor, which presumably um, requires good wages and benefits. How is it that we have um, seven individual private companies and they all seem to share a similar wage and benefit um, characteristics? In other words, it, it, it seems like we don't have seven, but rather we have one if we're talking about this massive strike. Explain to our listeners why that that is. Sure. So the federal government uh, in the early 1900s uh, and late 1800s had to deal with a lot of railroad strikes. Um, it was a big problem, uh, and <clears throat> obviously at that time it was uh, much more uh, a much larger part of our passenger uh, of, our, of our passenger transportation, but also for cargo and especially at that point for carrying the mail. Um, and so that was a much bigger part of our economy. It was a huge problem. There were uh, major strike in the early 20s that led Congress to pass uh, the Railway Labor Act in 1926. So railroads uh, operate on a completely different set of labor law 
uh, than other industries that are governed by the National Labor Relations Act, which came out of the New Deal in the 1930s. So that's actually newer than the Railway, uh, the Railway Labor Act. And uh, the whole point of the Railway Labor Act was to avoid strikes. Um, and so Congress set up uh, a whole list of different rules and different procedures that railways have to go through uh, to negotiate labor contracts. And um, it's a much more uh, hands-on process than the National Labor Relations Act. Uh, and so it is at the national level. Uh, there are two sort of uh, groups. It's uh, the National Rail Labor Conference and the National Carriers Conference Committee. Uh, first one represents labor, the second one represents the employers. And those two groups uh, negotiate for the whole country on um, on these things under under the Railway Labor Act. And so uh, ordinarily, Railway Labor Act agreements do not have, um, well, they don't ever have uh, expiration dates. Uh, they Whatever you make an agreement, that agreement lasts until the next agreement comes into effect, and that next agreement can happen whenever. Um, the sides had agreed to a uh, five-year uh, kind of span that what they would do. And uh, the last one was up in 2020. So they started a negotiation in November of 2019. And they continued to negotiate. It was sort of uh, stalled a little bit for, for COVID because a lot of these negotiations happen in person and they're actually very uh, very person-to-person -person and, and very much dependent on that. Um, and... Uh, and so there was some issues with that, but these negotiations dragged on for over two and a half years. Um, we got to uh, 2022 and um, uh, they went to mediation with the National Mediation Board, which is a independent federal agency that uh, puts basically puts these guys in a room and has uh, federally federal mediators to try to come to an agreement. Um, the mediators released them early uh, released them after a very short amount of time, uh, which is what the unions wanted. And um, once they do that, now we actually have deadlines. And so uh, there's a 30-day cooling off period after that for them to uh, for them to negotiate. They still didn't come to an agreement after that. And so President Biden appointed an emergency board, uh, uh, which is a power he has under the Railway Labor Act, to uh, to help settle this dispute. Now, the board meets for 30 days. They write a report uh, that gives independent recommendations that are non-binding uh, and just basically says, look, this is what we think is fair. Um, after that, you have another 30-day cooling off period, uh, which gives them more time to negotiate. So that's what we were coming up against uh, on, on Friday, was the end of that cooling off period. And at that point, uh, uh, labor would have been free to strike and the railroads would have been free to lock out the employees uh, if a deal was not made. So um, uh, fortunately, we avoided the worst of that. And uh, uh, But again, uh, that whole process is uh, completely different than other industries. The only other industry under the Railway Labor Act is airlines, actually, which are also included in that. But everybody else is is placed by, placed by uh, a different set of rules. 
very complex. I, I was taking notes, but uh, I'm not sure I caught it, caught it all. But I think effectively what you said is you got a, a large group that represents the um, uh, employees, the other representing the uh, the firms themselves, the management. Uh, they normally uh, get along. Uh, they set terms. Um, when they don't, uh, a federal mediator comes in, listens to both sides, and comes up with what they believe is a reasonable compromise. And the two sides have about 30 days to think about it. Um, what were the um, what were the issues at hand? What what why were they uh, so far apart and literally at the end of their cooling off period and uh, not not agreeing on much? What where were the key issues of of divide? Sure. Uh, in the presidential emergency board report, they they look at both sides um, and they just basically say, look, this is the argument the carriers made. This is the argument the organizations made. And uh, this is this is what we think is fair. It's actually a very interesting report. I mean, it's it's 124 pages, double space. So it's a little bit long, but it is doable. And it's written in pretty plain English. And it's, it's, it's relatively easy to get your mind around. So if you're really interested in the details of this, I actually encourage you to read read that report it, it it is interesting to see how these arguments actually actually happen and um and so uh you know on wages over the five-year life of the proposed agreement uh which would have been from beginning of 2020 to the end of 2024 so it, it's interesting they're sort of negotiating about you know past years um that have already happened and so uh, uh the things they would have agreed to things that they agreed to would actually uh, happen immediately for the years that have already occurred. And so on a question like wages, carriers wanted a 17% raise, the unions wanted a 31% raise, and the uh, Presidential Emergency Board basically split the difference and recommended a 24% raise. Now, that 24% raise was the um, is the largest that they've ever had in the history of, of national bargaining. And so um, uh, even though it wasn't as high as what the unions wanted, still very, very high. Um, compared to the past, and again, that reflects you know the higher rate of inflation. So the the raises that they would have gotten in 2020 and 2021 would have been above the rate of inflation. Um, the raise they would have gotten in 2022 would have been below it, but the raise in 23 and 24 was projected to be right around where inflation is projected to be. Now, obviously, <laughs> inflation projection is a little bit of a tricky business, but uh, that's what they said. Um, there was also concern about health benefits. The carriers wanted to do pretty significant restructuring of health benefits. Uh, the emergency board rejected all of that um, and mostly said to keep the status quo. Uh, there was concern about uh, sick days. Uh, the carriers, or excuse me, the unions wanted to add uh, 15 paid sick days as a minimum uh, for for all uh, for all rail employees. Um, the uh, uh, the carriers did not want to do that. Uh, Paid time off in railroad is very unusual, uh, kind of owing to the 24-7 nature of, of the business. Uh, there's not a lot of businesses that run that way. And so um, it is it is a very strange and, and complicated thing, but they wanted to have 15 days. Um, the emergency board said no. Um, they didn't think that that was fair. Um, they did add one additional uh, paid leave day. Um, and... Uh, and then uh, there was a particular concern about maintenance of way employees having their travel expenses reimbursed at a higher rate than they had in the past. And uh, the emergency board recommended that that would be accepted. And so they got um, they got a, a, a they got that updated. It hadn't been updated in like 20 years. And so uh, they're 
they weren't being fully compensated for a lot of their travel. And so, you know, it's very nitty gritty stuff like this that 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 was that was the issue here. Um, like I said, both sides were pretty much okay with the wage increase. So um, it wasn't that wasn't the major issue. The unions were were very adamant about these working condition quality of quality of life kind of things. So, yeah, listeners of uh, the podcast will know that we often will criticize uh, the work of unions, whether they be teachers unions or police unions, these sort of things. Uh, the railroad workers seem like a very sympathetic uh, group uh, that, uh, by math serves me, 24% increase over the five years described. Uh, they might wind up at the end with effectively no real increase when, when inflation is accounted for. Um, forgive me for uh, taking, um, let's say, a strong side on this, but what, how, um, how is it that they accepted this, um, as you say, the, uh, the mediating board recommended, and I guess the unions accepted it. But to me, um, if my reading of it is, is they got relatively um, modest wage increases, very little in the way of, as you say, the nitty gritty uh, quality of life, um, why did why would this be acceptable? Um, and given how much power, and we just covered how much uh, this would have disrupted the the country, why um, were the unions willing to accept a deal that seems to me, you know, modest? Sure, uh, the two largest really weren't willing to accept the deal, and so you have you have two. Uh, there are twelve unions that are covered in national bargaining. But two of them, uh, which is Smart TD and uh, the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, um, these two unions account for about 50% of all rail employees, and the other 10 split the other half. And so um, those two unions are uh, the most powerful within the National Rail Labor Conference. And so uh, they were the ones that were holding out on a lot of this stuff. Um, nine of the 12 unions were made tentative deals that basically accepted the emergency board report. Um, but these two, these two unions were holding out over these quality of life issues. And so we don't know yet the full details of the actual agreement that was made. We just know that uh, Secretary of Labor, Marty Walsh, uh, announced that there is an agreement and that there would be no strike, at least for now. And so uh, we don't know the full the full details of that, but according to reporting that has been done on it, uh, they did get some concessions on these quality of life things on on sick on sick time and on um, uh, and on some other things as well. Uh, it's not going to be the full fifteen days, I'm sure that they were that they were requesting, uh, but. According to the reporting that we have, there there were some concessions on that, and so uh, and so that that was what they were holding out for, and they got that a little bit, but we we'll, we'll, we still don't know the full nature of the compromise. Well, you gave a shout out to our former, uh, um, you know, I'm in Boston, our former mayor, uh, uh, Marty Walsh. Um, uh, you know, we we love when the home team uh, uh, scores a victory. Um, you, you mentioned these negotiations is very one-on-one, -on -one, very personal experience, and I think they uh, claim to be in the room for 20 hours and someone blocking the door. Can we actually attribute this sort of a, I will call it a um, a disaster averted or a, a genuine victory uh, for the country and for everyone involved? How much credit do you think should be uh, given to our Secretary of Labor, uh, Marty Walsh? Yeah. 
a lot of this, a lot of the lead up to this, and a lot of the reason it was so contentious was because of the past attitudes of the administration towards towards labor. So uh, the you know the president calls himself the most pro-union president, leading the most pro-union administration in American history. Um, uh, Secretary Walsh was a union president before he was in, in, in politics, or some might say that that still counts as being in politics. But um, I might say that, yeah. yeah, yeah. But he was he was a union president. Uh, you know, uh, President Biden gave uh, just uh, a, a very lengthy and laudatory address at the AFL CIO convention this year in Philadelphia, and so it's no secret whose side. The administration is on in disputes between management and labor. They're on the side of labor, um, and so uh, this kind of attitude has uh, created a lot of enthusiasm among among unions in the United States, and they kind of see this as a chance for a, a, a you know a union renaissance after having for decades you know lost membership and lost um, uh, and lost dues paying. Uh, dues-paying members. Uh, they represent a relatively small portion of the private sector um, and, and sort of the bulk of, of union membership today is, is in public sector and state and local government. And so uh, they kind of see this as an opportunity to get, to get back uh, some of the ground that they lost. And that's what fueled a lot of this enthusiasm, a lot of this sort of combativeness between between labor and management that we're not used to seeing for the last few decades. And um, uh, it could have been a situation where a uh, a uh, you know the uh, they've they've created a monster and it got out of control. Uh, fortunately, it seems like they were able to pull it back right at the eleventh hour. Uh, but. Uh, Avoiding a avoiding a nationwide crippling rail strike is a pretty low bar for uh, for success, and so uh, I, I I don't know if that's really praiseworthy as much as it is just um, uh, they they did the bare minimum. I, I see. So uh, again, you're saying that um, the pro labor stance of the current administration sort of served to foment uh, um, the kind of uh, disagreement that led to a, a near catastrophic strike. So in a sense, they put out the fire that they had made. Um, but you bring up an important uh, point. Um, uh, the few unions that do exist are generally going to be either subsidized or directly involved with government. Um, do they see uh, blood in the water, and perhaps we're going to see some follow-on uh, labor action, uh, uh, you know, in, in the same model? In other words, um, you know, uh, uh, they saw the playbook, and they're going to run it uh, in a different industry in the near future. Yeah, I mean, if if I was if I was unions, um, I'd be looking around the world right now. We have currently in the UK. Uh, Dock workers are on strike at the largest port in the UK. Um, at the second largest port in the UK, they've they've voted to strike. Uh, they've, they're 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 looking to strike as well. In Germany, we saw port workers go on strike there. Uh, both the UK and Germany; these are countries that have not had disruptions like this in in thirty years. Um, in Scandinavia, we saw the pilots of uh, of SAS, the Scandinavian airline. Um, we saw them go on strike earlier this year. And so uh, uh, truck truck drivers in South Korea also uh, pursued labor action. 
all this is very unusual um, in those in those places. We've seen generally tranquil labor relations and transportation sector in in all of those places. But uh, like I said, largely because of inflation, and largely uh, because uh, and, and partly because of COVID too. Because these are all workers who were working all the way through the pandemic. They didn't really get any time off or anything like that, and actually became more important during the pandemic. And so they kind of are looking around and saying, "Hey, we." We we want to have we we need more uh, we need more concessions from from management and uh, and so in the U.S. the next most obvious place to look is dock workers on the West Coast who uh, can legally right now strike whenever they want to um, they haven't yet but I mean there's nothing stopping them their contract expired on on July 1st and so since then they've been able to strike whenever they want and. Um, uh, and and again, if they're if they're looking at their sort of uh, colleagues in in the UK, um, they're they're seeing that uh, it is and, and in Germany, you know, they went on strike and they got a bigger wage increase after it. So uh, that is something to to be uh, on the lookout for. Yeah. So we're getting close to the end of our time together. But you would see, as you mentioned, it wouldn't have been a politically wise thing or a politically beneficial thing for a, a massive strike to occur. It uh, wouldn't be good for the fortunes of uh, any incumbent uh, politician. Uh, so do you see that, in a sense, there's a natural check on all of this, which is um, even though one might, a uh, president might consider himself pro-labor, uh, they're anti-inflation. Uh, uh, so uh, a strike would have had massive inflationary um, uh, uh, consequences. So in a sense, the president's over a barrel, right? He he wants to make labor happy, but he also wants to help tame inflation. Uh, he was between a rock and a hard place. He had to, to thread a, a, a very difficult needle. Uh, would you characterize it that way? Uh, yeah, I think so. Sometimes I question how seriously uh, the president takes his uh, stated uh, stance against inflation. But, um, but yeah, certainly I, I do think that that is sort of the, the position that uh, he found himself in, and um, uh, and was sort of in this uh, this awkward position of uh, rah rah unions, but also we've got midterms coming up, <laughs> and uh, we don't want to have a big a big nationwide transportation strike that's going to make everything more expensive right before voters go to the polls. And so uh, I definitely think that was part of it. Yes, indeed. When we scheduled this, I thought the strike was certainly imminent, and estimates. Uh, I don't know if you agree with those. Estimates had it gone through as a strike would have cost the uh, U.S. economy roughly two billion dollars a day. Uh, is are those the numbers? I mean, again, I, I because it didn't happen, uh, it's not going to make the headlines. But had it happened, uh, estimates of that magnitude, really massive influence on the U.S. economy. Is, is that what your estimate would be? So ordinarily, uh, when parties are released from mediation uh, from the mediation board, which is, again, this, that's what happened over the summer in this negotiation process. Uh, part of being released is that the National Mediation Board puts out a, um, a estimate of economic impact should a work stoppage occur. They didn't do that this time, which is one of the things that they skipped and they sort of rushed this process. And they did that because the unions wanted them to. Um, there's a two to one Democratic majority on the National Mediation Board right now, and the two Democrats voted to release them. The Republican did not, and the two Democrats um, both uh, have worked uh, for unions in, in their in their past careers, and so there was a little bit of of of, of that sort of thing going on. So we did not actually get a uh, a neutral 
um, estimate from the National Mediation Board. Uh, we got the $2 billion a day estimate, which was from the Association of American Railroads. Now, on the one hand, they know more about railroads than anybody does, but on the other hand, they are the railroads. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's a little bit of, uh, of, they probably wanted that number to to look big. Um, the uh, there's been some independent analysis actually from uh, the Anderson Economic Group, which estimates these things. Uh, they did one for the um, uh, the uh, uh, traffic stoppages between Canada and the U.S. earlier this year over those um, vaccine protests there, and um, and so they estimate these things. And using their methodology, they put it somewhere. Uh, they they put it in somewhere around. 70 to 90 million dollars a day so they, they had a much much lower estimate um the truth is probably somewhere between those two uh but you know uh, this is something that should be avoidable that you know we have legislation in place since the 20s for the sole purpose of avoiding and so uh any any damage that would have come from this would have been uh, an unforced error and it would have been and it would have been quite quite bad so last question I want to ask you, looking forward then, is how long will this last? And will we be all be back here in 2024 or beyond? Um, and in the meantime, are, are, are shippers trying to find um, alternatives? Meaning if they see this as a uh, choke point, uh, they may rely more heavily on trucks, which as you say, are more expensive, more labor intensive, and more uh, uh, less environmentally friendly. Or again, with um, fuel, things like this, uh, building more pipelines so that it doesn't have to be shipped by rail. Uh, what will be the, let's say, long-term reaction to, to this event? Sure. Uh, for energy, pipelines are absolutely the answer. That has to be part of our, um, that has to be part of our energy policy as country and as and, and at the state level going forward. Um, and it's especially the case for for New England up there. Um, you know, uh, there are not enough pipelines that connect to New England, and so uh, New England is often in the position of importing uh, gas from abroad instead of getting it from Texas. Um, it would be, and and if it were actually cheaper and, and better to do that, that would be that would be fine. But the reason that it's cheaper and better to do that is because uh, government blocks uh, pipeline construction and government blocks uh, uh, domestic ocean shipping because of because of the Jones Act, and so uh, and so you know those kind of regulatory uh, barriers are definitely something that we need to clear out so that we're not so dependent on one mode of transportation or or anything like that for uh, for getting these basic these basic goods uh, basic goods to go around. Wonderful. I'm glad we got at least a, a, a meaningful policy a, a bit of advice uh, talking about going forward and, and avoiding these kind of choke points in the future. So, um, again, um, uh, I enjoyed having you on the show today, Dominic. Uh, where can our listeners read more about your very uh, um, uh, wise and thorough uh, reporting? Uh, sure. Over at uh, nationalreview.com. Uh, that's where we are. I encourage everybody to subscribe to. NR Plus, which is our, our um, that's that'll give you full access to everything on on the website, and uh, we'll do it pretty much ad free as well. So um, none of those annoying pop up ads or anything like that. It's a it's a very nice experience if you do that. And um, and uh, and so yeah, so I'm on nationalreview.com, and then uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Dominic J Pino, 
Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, I, I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, share my work with you guys and, uh, wish you all the best up there. Good. I recommend it. I recommend National Review. I think it, it certainly is a, a right of center uh, perspective, but I think the broad range of writers there uh, uh, cover all the bases. So you you know you can pick and choose uh, who to follow. I, I, I find your work uh, wonderful. So thank you for being uh, uh, my guest today on, on Hubwonk. Thank you for uh, your, the work that you do. Thank you so much, Joe. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are several ways to support the show and Pioneer Institute. It will be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. It would make it easier for others to find Hubwonk if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or suggestions or comments for me about future episode topics, please email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.